Last summer, Emily and I went out to eat at a restaurant that had an outdoor patio. Maybe you've been at one of these kind of restaurants. We kind of wish for them when it's really cold out. Opportunity to get back to the summer and the good things there. But while we were eating, an ambulance raced by. I mean, it was maybe 10 feet from us. I don't know if you've ever been in a spot like that, but it was so loud. There was definitely no way we could talk. And there was really no way we could even hear ourselves think. It's like that, that siren was just like rattling our brain as it went on the way by. I wonder if you've been so close to a siren or to alarm bells that you know exactly what that's like. Or maybe you were on a street corner and you felt that. Or maybe, maybe you were in a stairwell, one of those block stairwells when somebody pulls the fire alarm and that sound just echoes. And I mean, I can't talk, I can't hear myself think. This is completely overwhelming. Well, whatever the case that may be, we know that alarms and sirens are meant to scream at us and to say, we have a major problem. That's what they're supposed to do, right? Be so loud, so all-encompassing, you can't think about anything except that we have a major problem. On the complete other end of the spectrum, whispers are unlike sirens. They rarely accompany major problems, right? What do whispers do? Well, they tend to be more personal. They tend to tell you something that the rest of the room isn't ready to hear yet. That's why you need to whisper it so not everyone else hears it. And Genesis 3, verses 8 through 24, the passage we have this morning, it contains a fascinating mixture of both sirens and whispers, so here's the thing I want you to see primarily in this passage this morning, that despite the deafening sirens of our sin, God whispers to us in his grace. There's sirens of our sin all over the world, in ourselves, outside of ourselves, and those are deafening. And yet, with them, there are whispers of God's grace all throughout that he intends for us to hear and to receive and find comfort in. So what we'll do this morning is the first bit we'll talk about the sirens of the sin and we'll just kind of tell the story and just kind of meander and weave our way through it. It's not a real strict outline at any point there. And then when we get to the parts of God's whispering to us in his grace, I'll give you seven whispers of grace that we see in Genesis 3. So if at the beginning you're not sure exactly how to take notes, don't, don't worry about it, don't freak out, we'll get there. Um, just kind of track the story and feel what Adam and Eve would have been feeling. So we start out with sirens of sin. What are the sirens of sin? Sirens scream out to us. Like I said, we have a major problem. Or to say it a little differently, it's not supposed to be this way. That's what sirens tell us. Look back at your copy of the scriptures. We see these initial sirens getting started. I'll actually go back to verse 7 where we concluded last week uh, and then read through verse 10. Look back at the scriptures with me. We read, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. See, there's a root here for Adam and Eve of guilt, 
which leads to shame. They felt ashamed because they were guilty of breaking God's rules. And you put yourself back in their shoes the first time they had crossed this line. The very first time. And there was no small offense. You remember a time maybe you crossed the line for the first time. And your heart rate spikes. Your hands get a little twitchy. Your fingers are trembling. They were scared to ask, what did we just do? And sometimes, you know this, sometimes that question is better left without an answer because you're scared of the answer. And so you seek silence because to even bring it up is, is too scary. I remember a time I was in high school doing uh, landscaping work for a guy who had an extensive property. He had all kinds of tools. He had a, this big gator that we were driving stuff all around. And we were about halfway through the project, and we'd been loading mulch into this gator and driving all over his property. And uh, we ran out of gas. So I put some more gas in, didn't realize I put the wrong kind of gas in. And it was, you know, maybe 20 minutes later, this thing wouldn't start, it wouldn't work. And now I'm thinking, what did I just do? Here I'm making, you know, 10 bucks an hour or something, and this thing is worth like thousands of dollars. And so do I call him and tell him, hey, I, I broke your really expensive gator, or do I try and figure it out myself? And I try to go and tell him, like, oh, no, I can't go talk to him about it. I, I got to fix it myself. And the more I start to tinker it, the more I realize, like, this is going nowhere. I've got to go talk to him. What did I just do? This is, this is a lose-lose. There's nowhere good for this thing to go, right? And it was really painful for me in that moment to think about what I should do. For Adam and Eve, you have to imagine, it was incredibly painful to think about what did we just do and what should we do about it? And for all of us, it's really hard to think about ourselves in the moment where we've crossed the line, where we have sinned, where we've felt that guilt, that shame, and to say, oh man, what am I supposed to do here? Right? Sometimes it's the first time you cross a line. That's a different kind of frustration, different kind of fear that we feel. But there's other times where you cross that same line for the 15th time or the 50th time. Did I just do that again? And that guilt comes raging at you with a whole new fury and you don't know what to do. Man, I wonder if you've felt that kind of pain, that kind of guilt from financial lies. You've been stealing perhaps from your, your company or from clients or your family and you're hoping to keep that as your little secret. Or maybe that's not you. Maybe you just feel the pressures of life and you try and escape them through substance abuse. Have I gone back to that drink again? to that drug or to those pills. And to think about it feels entirely crushing. Maybe it's going back to that form of sexual sin that you prefer. Maybe it's just in your mind. Maybe it's through a novel or through a device or actually in the flesh. And you step back, what did I just do? What can I do about this? Maybe it's, maybe it's totally different for you. Maybe it's just a toxic relationship with food. So, man, I, I stayed up late again, pounded three more bowls of ice cream, and I just run to food as if it can save me from where I'm at. 
or maybe it's, maybe it's not that kind of relationship with food. Maybe you go out with friends happily, seem to have a great time, but as soon as you come home, you know what's gonna happen. You come home to gag yourself to purge that meal. What have I done? I go back again. You see, as we enter into these spots, the guilt and the shame can be absolutely crushing. And so what do we do in our lives? We do the exact same thing that Adam and Eve did. What do they do? They go hide in the trees because they can't deal with the guilt, nor can we deal with the guilt in our lives. They're afraid of being seen. They're afraid of being known. Here is the siren that's ringing. I can't be seen. I can't be known. I have to hide. It's deafening. I can't hear anything else except that I must not be seen or known. Adam in verse 10 says he's afraid of God's mere presence. Look back, see what he says. He just says, I heard the sound of you. God didn't have to say anything. He just heard him walking. Maybe you can imagine a boss that's walked by or a parent that's walked by, and the mere sound of them walking down the hallway, you know, oh no, they're going to catch me. And it grips you with fear. This is what Adam and Eve felt. But it's not a hiding that was limited to the garden. You see, just the next book over, the book of Exodus, Moses would go up on the mountain. God would meet him on the mountain to give him the Ten Commandments. And as God is there, the Israelites get terrified and they run to the other side to hide because God's there. They fear. You can't be known, I can't be seen. But this isn't even a a response that is limited to Genesis or Exodus. It was just a few years ago, the All-American Rejects came out with their song, Dirty Little Secret. I'll keep you my dirty little secret, who has to know? This is a, a deep human response of hiding because we can't be seen, we can't be known. We tell ourselves, we can hide this. I can hide from God, I can hide from others, And that's a lie. Some of you are here this morning. You're hearing me say, Justin, I absolutely know I'm hiding from God. I know I'm hiding from others and I don't know what to do about it. But others, others will hear that and say, am I hiding from God? Am I hiding from others? I I don't know. I don't want to. I don't think so. But am I? I? I would ask you, Can you tell me or somebody else about the last time you've run to God confessing your sins to him? You see, there's there's no middle ground here. You're either bringing your sin into the light and exposing it, or you are concealing it, but there's no middle ground, right? You're either taking it to the light or hiding it from the light, but there's no status quo in this one. And I would ask the same question. Have you confessed sin recently to another brother or sister? James 5 says that's where there's healing. You're either, like I just said, you're either bringing sin into the light or you're keeping it in the darkness. You're hiding it. But what so frequently happens for myself and so many of us is we pull out the mask and we put it on because as painful as it is to be isolated and alone, it feels a thousand more times painful to be actually known. Right? Being alone is terrible. Being isolated is terrible. We know that. But to be known, like really known, feels way more painful. 
So we grab the mask and we put it back on. And so often we use busyness as a form of hiding. We say, oh, I'd love to get together, but the, the schedule's just so crazy, you know? It's a convenient excuse for us to hide. And of course, the schedule is really busy. I, I'm not denying that in any way, shape, or form. But we all know that if somebody offered us tickets to our favorite show or courtside seats to an upcoming Purdue IU game, we would definitely have the time. You see, busyness can be a culturally acceptable form of hiding in the church. Now, maybe you need to confess this morning that you're hiding behind your busyness. It's our numbing medication of choice at times. You see, we hide out of fear. That's what Adam and Eve did. And that's what we've been doing ever since as they are our father and mother. That's what all humans have been doing. But we actually do more than that. We become skilled at shifting the blame. Look back at verses 12 and 13. We read, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. They don't just hide, they shift the blame onto somebody else. Ironically, the good gift from God, the woman, is then turned around and said to be the problem. What a twist that was. It's not good that man be alone. I will bless you. This is a great gift. And he says, oh no, it's actually her fault. She's the issue. We take God's blessings and blame him for them. How twisted is that? And Eve, I mean, she seriously said to God, yeah, the snake made me do it. Like that's worse than an elementary kid saying, the dog ate my homework. Because we joke about that and Eve was actually serious. Like, the self-deception going on here that causes to shift the blame to others. And we've got all sorts of things we blame ourselves, don't we? Well, my health problem kept me from this. Because of my job, I just have to do this. Well, my spouse is this way, so I have no, I mean, I don't really like where we're at, but what am I supposed to do? Yeah, this is not good where we're at, but my kids are doing this or that, and so I have no choice. It's not ideal, but it's what we gotta do. Kid, students, don't we blame our teachers? I know this wasn't the best way to go about it, but it was such an unfair test, so it's okay. We blame our personality. Just an Enneagram 3 kind of thing. I don't know what to do. I'm an ENTJ. It's just part of being choleric. We've got all sorts of ways we're shifting the blame off of ourselves instead of taking responsibility for what we've done. You see, Adam and Eve felt these sirens hiding fear, blaming, resounding all throughout their inner being. But God also comes in and declares some additional sirens to say this is not how things are supposed to be. There's a major problem here. And the sirens that God declares and proclaims are more in the external world, but they also bring the same unmistakable message. There's a major problem and this isn't how it's supposed to be. Look back at verse 14. This is where we see those start to get introduced. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. There's a curse placed on the serpent. Now, we're not sure if 
crawling on his belly was a new thing or is a new significance given to something that previously existed? We're not entirely sure, but eating the dust appears to be the lasting curse that's placed here. Has anybody ever been to a snake exhibit at the zoo? You see those things, and there's always some knuckle-headed kid who's going around like poking on the glass. I'm like, dude, knock it off. That thing's going to get mad and burst out of the glass, and we're all going to die. <laughs> like that just, I, I start to get like chills just thinking about it right now. Maybe you're feeling the same way. But we look, and we're like, man, I just intuitively know when I look at those creatures, there is something fundamentally off. <laughs> I can't put my finger on it exactly, but I just know it's not right. Like, they're scary. Sirens resounding. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. You know what's really fascinating? This is one part, serpents eating the dust, that continues into eternity. It's like a forever reminder that Jesus conquered sin and put the serpent down. Isaiah 65, we read this, of where things are all made right again. And check this out. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall still be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. It's like a forever eternal reminder, say a slight whisper of grace from the book of Isaiah that Jesus has conquered sin and it's always put down. It never comes back. We continue into verse 15 of Genesis 3. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Satan receiving this, receiving this from God. This word Enmity is a tough one for us, but note before I define that, it's between the serpent's seed, his offspring, and the woman's offspring. It's between the offspring, this enmity exists. And what is enmity? You could define it as extreme animosity, hostile intent, a desire for murder. This is why in Jesus in John 8 would say that Satan was a murderer from the beginning. This is the, the enmity part that he references in John 8, there. And this opens up a major storyline of the Bible where there's enmity, there's hatred between different seeds, between different offsprings. Sibling rivalry is born here. And every time you see sibling rivalry in the Bible or in your life, it's a siren saying it's not supposed to be this way. We've got a major problem. Hagar and Sarah, Jacob and Esau, Leah and Rachel, sirens everywhere. It's like God is inviting us into this immersive worship experience where everything we see around us is telling us sirens ring, there's a major problem, it's not supposed to be this way. Verse 16, we continue. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband but he shall rule over you. You see, the things that were given by God, designed by God as joyous blessings, they become painful consequences. Maybe you felt that pain through infertility or maybe just through the sheer pain of childbirth. Every time, sirens, not supposed to be this way. 
to love and to cherish gets transformed into desire, to desire and to dominate, right? Sacrifice from the man to his wife, submission from the woman to her husband. They were supposed to be freely given and now so frequently they're forcibly taken. Let me say that again. In the Bible, sacrifice and submission are always to be freely given, never forcibly taken. And yet in a sin-cursed world, you see that siren ringing everywhere. Major problem, not supposed to be this way. So husbands, willingly lay down your life for your spouse. Wives, joyfully submit to your husband. Let your lives be a testimony of grace that there is a better way. We come down to verse 17. We read what God says to the man. And to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The ground is cursed. We could easily spend a whole sermon on those couple of verses and everything that means, right? But it means that work is hard. It means you're going to have to deal with lazy colleagues and overbearing colleagues. Do you feel like your plans are always getting thwarted? Ever feel that way to you? Sirens, not supposed to be this way. We have a major problem. Whether it be floods or droughts, whether it be too much government interference or not enough government regulation, Sirens, not supposed to be this way. Major problem. Immersive worship experience. Everything in our life is screaming with this siren, or nearly everything. It's not supposed to be this way. You see, the passage is filled with deafening sirens of our sin. And up to this point, I mean, for much of the sermon, you could hear a pin drop in here because the message has been kind of hard to listen to, hasn't it? I get that. I'm bringing siren after siren after siren right onto your front porch. Because we feel these things. We hear them all around us. And yet, in the midst of all the sirens that are deafening, that make it so hard to talk and think, we hear whispers ever so subtly of God's grace. I think of these whispers a bit like noise-canceling headphones in a loud coffee shop. They don't deny the external noise. They don't pretend like the sirens aren't there. They just take you somewhere better. Because God, in the midst of a broken world, is designed you to be taken somewhere better by his grace. So as we feel the weight of the, the sin, the guilt, the shame, the fear, the blame, the hiding... Let us go back and in the midst of Genesis 3, not only see judgment, not only see bad news, but see whispers of God's grace to remind us that even in judgment, there's mercy. And even in God's wrath, we see his love. In every, of the, every one of the seven whispers we'll get to, we're going to see how God extends his grace to us. But church, what I also want you to do, 
I want you to think about how the, the local church takes the concept of God's grace and puts it on display. It's been said that the church is the gospel made visible. So hear the clear truths of God's word, but also consider how we, as God's church, embody these and live them out. All right, let's, let's dig into these. Seven whispers of grace. Whisper number one, God's name. This is in verse eight. We read, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. I said this two weeks in a row. I'll say it a third week. Yahweh is the covenant-making God, the relational God. He is personal. He's near you. Elohim is the powerful God. God says, I am both personal and powerful. And in Satan's temptations, he'd left out the personal part. He said, he's a powerful, distant God. He might have power over the universe, but he's arbitrary and you can't trust him. And as soon as God shows up, the first thing we read is the Lord God, the personal and powerful God. So you can try to portray God as powerful and distant, but that simply isn't him. And Satan will tell that to you. And you just need to know that that lie isn't new and it's also not going away. He's gonna continue to tell you that. But God enters into covenant relationship with his people and he will not be talked out of that. Praise God. That's a, a subtle and a simple whisper of grace. Here's the second whisper. God initiates. Look back at verse eight again. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You see, they're hiding, but what does God do? He goes to them. He pursues them. He doesn't stand back waiting for them to get themselves together, and he's not standing back waiting for you to get yourself together. He doesn't say to them, well, I haven't moved. You know where to find me. You know where I'm at. I'll wait here. No, that's not the gospel. That's not what God does in Genesis 3, nor is it what Jesus does. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came to us. He came and chased us down. He initiates. And so frequently, we fail to live out the gospel in this way. We see those around us where there's interpersonal friction and tension, and we say, oh, that's on them. They did that. They know where to find me. I'll be here. No, initiate, pursue, live out the gospel. Guys, we know that sin isolates us. We know that. And rarely do we pursue community in our sin. That's rarely how it happens, if ever. But God's still pursuing you. And as his church, we're called to pursue and chase down others, especially when they're in the wrong. James 5 beautifully talks about how glorious it is if you could pull back a sinner from their wandering way. God initiates. Third whisper of grace. God invites. Look at verse 9. We read, But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? How is that a whisper of grace? Because God doesn't lead with a thunderous, angry judgment. Yes, he's upset by sin, but he's not enraged at you. 
And by asking and inviting question, what does God do? He offers Adam the opportunity to take off the mask, to repent, and turn back to God. Don't miss the beauty of this. This is why maybe you've heard it said, religion said, I, says, I messed up, my dad's gonna kill me. The gospel says, I've messed up, I really need to call my dad because I know he'll receive me. Because he's not thundering down angry judgment, he's inviting me to repentance. And as God asks this question, certainly he knows what Adam will say, that Adam will pass the buck, that he won't take responsibility, that he's gonna push it off. Right? He knows that's going to happen. But even in declaring consequences, his speech is marked by grace. Boy, there's a great lesson for us right there. You can be 100% accurate in your words and 100% wrong in how you say them. Let me say that again. You can be 100% accurate in your words and 100% wrong in how you say them. And we'll say things like, well, it's the truth. It might be the truth. But God has called us to be filled with grace and truth. Sometimes we're filled with truth and truth. These two whispers of God initiating and inviting, all alone, they could be a bit misunderstood. Here's what I mean by that. Yes, it's true that God comes to you and graciously invites you to come to him. But it's more than that. Right? He doesn't merely offer you a divine hug to a, as a guilty person. He offers more than trite condolences to the condemned. It's more than that. So that's where the fourth whisper comes in. Whisper number four, God conquers. Look at verse 15. It's a turning point in the whole plot of the Bible. God conquers, verse 15. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is called the first gospel. It's the first time that a message of the gospel is explicitly said in the Bible. It's a first prediction of Jesus coming to conquer Satan, to conquer sin, to conquer hell, to conquer death. What it says is that the woman's seed, ultimately Jesus, will take a painful blow to the heel, which we know would be fulfilled at the cross of Calvary. But it wouldn't kill him and keep him down, although it would knock him down. But he would rise up and deliver a fatal blow to the head of Satan and to sin and to death. So Jesus would crush his head while receiving a wound to the heel. And the whole rest of the Old Testament is reading in looking for who is the one that would be the snake crusher. Who's going to do that? Is it going to be Noah? He seems to be a righteous one. Nope, not him. Is it going to be Abraham? He seems to be the righteous one. Nope, not him. Jacob, Isaac, Joseph, Moses. Who is it? Where's the snake crusher? The whole Old Testament builds with people who look like they'll be good enough to do it, and then we find out they're just like us and they're not good enough, that no human can get there on their own. We need someone outside of our race to come in and save us. It's building tension throughout the rest of the Bible. Guys, the reality is this. Jesus on the cross would come and absorb this blow from Satan so that you wouldn't have to. This is so critical that you hear this. Look, because of our sin, there is a death blow coming, and somebody has to take it. 
And it's either you take it and you die an eternal death, or you hide behind Jesus who came to earth on the cross and took the death blow, and you hide behind him so that you do not die an eternal death. That's the heart of Christianity right there, that he came and lived the perfect life that we didn't and died the gruesome death that we should have as a way of bringing us back to God because we couldn't ever do it on our own. If you're not a Christian, that's what you need to believe, that you can hide behind Jesus' perfect life and death and subsequent resurrection because he's conquered sin and death and hell and Satan. It's also interesting to note here in Genesis 3.15, these words are proclaimed to Satan, not to a human. Why does that matter? Because the gospel and Jesus conquering everything is as much about God's rule over the entire universe as it is man's need for a savior. To Satan, you came in and you tried to mess it all up and I will conquer you and I will rule over everything. And in our Western individualized world, we want to shrink it down and say it's merely fire insurance where I can get out of hell. And we see here in Genesis 3 that it's God's rule over all creation and his path for you as a person to be saved as well. You've got to have both. That one's not so much a whisper of grace. He's kind of shouting grace in our face right there, but it fit with the seven, right? What's the fifth whisper? Fifth whisper, God defines he defines us. Verse 20, look down there. We read, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. How do we see grace being whispered here? Think about this. Following the greatest failure of her life, you might say the greatest failure in all of history. It's a pretty epic failure. Eve is given a name, an identity that is brimming with hope. Think of the names Eve could have received. Deceived one, failure, unworthy one, royal screw up. Might have been appropriate, but what does she get? Mother of all the living, brimming with hope. You see, here's what I think happens. I think Adam hears the promise of verse 15, and in faith, in faith, he renames Eve so that she knows her failures don't define her. God leads, he says, Eve, your failures don't define you, and Adam follows suit and renames her as a way of reminding her of God's truth. Man, I wonder this morning, do you do this with others? Do you define people as you see them? Or do you define them as God sees them and as God defines them? And before you look out at others, look in at yourself. Do you believe your failures define you? Friends, don't believe that lie from Satan. Don't believe it. He will tell you over and over and over that those failures do define you, and they don't. If you're in Christ, it's the grace of God that defines you, not your moral or religious performance, and not your lack of moral or religious performance. It's the grace of God that defines you and gives you a new name. That's why that old hymn says there's a new name written down in glory. It's a new name. It's not who I was. It's not what I've done. It's who Jesus did, or what Jesus did, and who Jesus is. Whisper six, God provides, verse 21. 
And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. It's a whisper of God's grace that he provides. See, what it means is that sin separates us from God. He's holy, we're not. And for that relationship to be restored, for it to be brought back together, a provision is required. And God graciously looks down and recognizes you can't do it on your own. So he provides. Grace doesn't mean then that you never mess up. It doesn't mean that you never have things to hide anymore. It just means I know they've been covered so I don't have to hide them anymore. That's a major difference. Being a Christian doesn't mean you've got it all together, that you always do the right thing, that you never have a mess in your life that you have to clean up. That's not what it means at all. Somebody's told you that. They lied to you. What it means is that the grace of God is sufficient to cover that so I don't have to fear hiding it because I already know it's covered by the blood of the Lamb. I love how Paul Tripp says this. He says, we are lovingly called out of the darkness, out from behind the trees, into the open and into the light, not because we don't have things to hide, but because grace means we no longer have to hide them. Friends, that's what it means to live in grace. That I recognize, yeah, I've got stuff that I would like to hide, but rather than me trying to hide it, I'm gonna let grace cover it, and I'm gonna hide behind the cross. I'm gonna let that lead me forward. These things can be brought out into the light. They can be exposed because provision for my sin has been made by Jesus. Final whisper, number seven. God protects. Down in verse 24, take a look down there with me. We read, he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You may see that seventh whisper, God protects, and think, Justin, that seems strange to me. Why would God prevent them from eating of the tree of life? That doesn't feel like protection. That feels like cruelty. There's medicine right there. Why aren't you letting your kids have the Tylenol? Why would he do that? Well, there's no indication in the scriptures that eating of the tree of life would have atoned for their sins. No payment would have been made. See, many theologians think that had they eaten of the tree of life, they would have continued living forever in a sin-filled world because sin had not been dealt with. So it's actually God's protection in kicking them out to say, my holiness must be protected. I will send away, I will provide, I will bring you back in, but you can't do it. So I gotta kick you out so that you'll recognize this isn't gonna work. Now the cherubim is here at the outside of the garden. In the temple, in the Holy of Holies, the most special, protected, innermost place where the holiness of God is on display. Do you know what's sewed into all the fabric all the way around? Cherubim. Protection. You can't come here. The holiness of God is too great. You can't come close. So the, the cherubim guarding the garden forcefully and lovingly says, you can't save yourself. You don't need a second chance to eat the right fruit from the right tree. You need more than a second chance. You need something much bigger than a second chance. 
This idea of, well, it was just a little mess up, I'll be better next time, is a lie. It's not going to work. You need outside help, is what he's saying. And as if the angels weren't clear enough, there's a flaming sword that's turning in every direction, plus the angel right there to say, make no mistake about it. You see, sometimes when you're trying to solve a difficult problem, the most helpful thing you can do is start ruling out the bad options. Right? Yep, that's not going to work. Let's move on from that. And it's as if God is saying, I'm protecting you from the bad option of thinking a moral improvement plan can get you here. There's no chance you can be good enough to earn your way to me. And I'm protecting you from that lie. I'm helping you to see my holiness is so great, there must be a different path from the outside that brings you back to the garden. You see, we come to the end of Genesis 3 here, and trees have been at the center of the story. They've been all over it. So let me recap just a little bit, very briefly, as we wrap up here. And as we do that, I want you to think about the trees, even in the outside world, on the way home in a totally different way. Think about how they reveal the gospel to you. The tree, initially a source of blessing. They could eat freely from the trees, except for the one. But the trees became a siren, screeching alarm bells as Adam and Eve ate from them. Curses and consequences now came from the trees. They hid from the, in the trees, hiding from God in the trees. So what was supposed to be the blessing had become the curse, and they hid in their own doing. And what does Jesus do? He goes to a tree. And the curse that came from your action put him on the tree, and on the tree of the cross, he absorbed all of God's wrath, all of the curses, all of the consequences, so that trees could again be a source of blessing. He'd be hidden from God on the tree so that you would never again have to hide from God in the trees. And in eternity, we see his throne with the river flowing through paradise with the tree of life right next to it. Guys, it's so easy for us to think about the sirens in our life, to be scared of where the guilt and the shame feels crushing, and to think that we can sow our own fig leaves and hide behind the trees of our life from God, from others, from being known. And it never, ever works. The sirens are there to tell you there are whispers of grace along the way, and there is a better way forward here. So we'll go to communion in a minute. And when we do that, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about, think about Jesus up on that cross, paying the penalty for your sins, absorbing the curses, absorbing the consequences, the wrath of God, so that wherever you try to hide that stuff in your life that's deep in your closet, the skeletons you don't want anybody to know about, to know it's been covered by the blood of the lamb. You don't have to be like your father Adam or your mother Eve. You can come out of the darkness into the light because it's been covered by Jesus. Guys, if you're not a Christian this morning, communion is not for you. There's, don't take that. But I do urge you, cry out to Jesus to save you. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. And if you are a Christian, go back once again, see his work, and come out into the light. Let's pray.